And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, 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 and welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio. 75live.com. Thank you, my darling Bibi, for introducing me. My name is Shannon Riley. It is my pleasure to come to you every Sunday to talk a little bit about the world's greatest playwright, William Shakespeare. As I've said before, I don't consider myself a Shakespearean scholar. I consider myself somebody who really is a devotee of the writings of William Shakespeare. I love to read about him. I love to watch him. I love to talk about him. And KSEF is nice enough to allow me to come to you every Sunday on the 8th and talk a little bit about William Shakespeare. And today, we continue our path as we go working through his works, and we're up to the fourth and final play of his second tetralogy. That's four plays telling one story. And again, we are at the final play, Henry V, probably his greatest history play ever. Now, there's a bit of an argument among some scholars about what is the greatest history play. Some say Richard III, some say Henry V. The truth is, in both tetralogies, it is the final play that is the culmination of all of the wonderful writing that Shakespeare does throughout the course of that tetralogy. First tetralogy is not very well written. Here, in this, the Henriad, as it's called, the stories that tell the story from Richard II to Henry IV Part I, Henry IV Part II, and finally, Henry V really illustrate the strength of character, the arc of story, and Shakespeare's ability to add humor to a dry history and add passion to an English king. This is a great play. Although, some scholars feel like it's not really one of his greatest plays. And I just don't agree. I think it's absolutely a mesmerizing play, and there's a lot of great versions of it out there if you want to catch the play itself. Here's another thing that I'm going to always go back to, and that is when I say, when you're talking about the works of William Shakespeare, you have to keep in mind when he was writing these works. And here you have a case of exactly that. Only a few decades before this play was written was the defeat of the Spanish Armada by the English Navy in the English Channel. England is writing high on nationalism at the time of these plays being written. It's why the history plays were so important and so popular in the time. And Henry V was certainly very, very popular in England. They treated Henry V much the way we treat our political heroes. For instance, imagine Abraham Lincoln. We tend to revere Abraham Lincoln as the man who stood there when the nation was at its roughest point and brought our nation back together. To the English, Henry V is that great noble leader who brought nationalism to the forefront, who had huge success on the battlefield, and who really almost conquered France, and by all rights, technically did conquer France. But I'm going to talk about that in a second. So today, we're going to first talk about the play itself. I'm going to go through and do the synopsis, and as I do the synopsis again, I'm going to talk a little bit about how this reflects on real life and the real Henry V and what was going on in Shakespeare's life at that time. Now, it was written probably around 1599, somewhere in that area. And some people believe it was written even earlier than that, and some push it back. They think it was the first play performed at the Globe Theater, which wasn't built until 1603, mainly because the prologue has this opening speech where he comes out and and mentions this wooden O that they are performing in, meaning the Globe, that big round theater with a big opening in the center that the groundlings could see up to the sky. Well, technically, 
all theaters were big round O's at that time. They were all basically the same thing. Globe just happened to be a bigger one. In this particular case, it was probably performed at the Curtain the very first time because by the time it's published in 1600, it's mentioned that it was performed various sundry times over the last few years. So it obviously had been around for a little while and was predating the Globe. So it's a neat story to say it was a first show of the Globe, but it's unlikely. Now, Henry V is, again, the end of four plays. Richard II, Henry IV Part I, and Henry IV Part II. We meet Henry, actually, Henry V, when he's young Prince Hal in Henry IV Part One, And he is a sort of ne'er-do-well, a uh, irresponsible prince. A, a man who likes to drink and whore around with his buddy Falstaff and Pistol, and not really seen as a, a very remarkable or kind young man. It is Henry IV, his father, who is most disappointed in his son. But Henry IV is dogged, as I've said earlier, by this idea that he is an illegitimate king. He killed Richard II and took the crown. He's a usurper. And this fear of being a usurper dogs him his entire life. He thinks his son, Henry V, will never be king, and if he does, he'll obviously lead it to ruin. But Henry IV sees his son sort of change. Even in Henry IV Part One, he leads a battle against Hotspur and defeats him. So we see a very powerful, very noble young man. And then he falls back again in Henry IV Part Two. But then at the end of Henry IV Part Two, he swears off his past allegiance to all of things that are unkind and unright, and even turns his back on his buddy Falstaff. This is where we start Henry V. We start Henry V, first of all, with a prologue. There's a, there's a prologue before each one of the acts where a narrator comes out and tells you about what's going to happen during the course of the play. And this narrator, who many believe was played by Shakespeare himself, sets the stage at each one of the acts as we go forward. Keep in mind, Elizabethan theaters didn't worry about sets. They just didn't build scenery. They built props, they built furniture, and they really cared about costumes. But they didn't care about scenery because the audience would listen to what they say and believe what was being described. So this narrator becomes very, very important in the course of the play because he's telling his audience, imagine that we have something bigger than this stage. Imagine you see this great battle. Oh, for a muse of fire, he says, that can somehow confer the idea of a massive space where these English and French armies will meet and fight. And the audiences eat it up. So as each one of these prologues come forward, we hear the story of Henry V. Oh, 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 where are my manners? I can't open the play yet. I forgot. My boy's waiting here in the wings. It's time for... And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. Yes, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. And boy, we've got good ones in Henry V. You've got once more into the breach, dear friends. Once more, or close up the wall with our English dead. Act 3, scene 1. You also have the famous Crispin Day speech, where he says, We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Act 4, scene 3. There's also some great turns of phrase here that have now become quite common in our lexicon of speaking. For instance, there's Oh for a Muse of Fire, as I mentioned earlier. There's also The Turning of the Tide or The Games of Foot. You thought that came from Sherlock Holmes, didn't you? But one of my favorite quotes is one that I kind of live by and unfortunately very seldom live up to. And that's, Men of few words are the best men. Act 3, Scene 2. <laughs> Love that quote. So thank you, my boy, for reminding me to once again go to the quote of the week. So on with the story of Henry V. 
So as we said, we open up with a prologue. And as he's describing this great battle that is to come, we first go and visit two bishops who remind us of what a great man Henry has grown to be. Instead of this wastrel who hung out in East Cheap, he is now a very just and powerful king. And the king has turned his eyes on what he believes to be his birthright, France. This is indeed true. The Hundred Years' War was going on at this particular time, and King Henry V really did believe the throne of France as well as England belonged to him. He demands being given the throne from France. Of course, the Dauphin of France, who he himself wants to one day hold the crown and is waiting for his father, King Charles VI, to die, sends him a gift of tennis balls. Tennis balls were seen as a game for children, and a game for wealthy children at that, spoiled children. Henry is furious at this gift, but he remains calm, and this is the precursor to who Henry is in battle. He is calm, he is deliberate, he takes the offense and delivers it back with a promise that he himself will hold the throne of France. He says that this mockery of the dolphins hath turned his tennis balls into gunstones, and that he shall and all shall have cause to curse the dolphin scorn. So of course, Henry has turned his eye to battle. Now, before we can get there, we get to Act 2, where we run into three very disreputable English lords. They are Richard, Earl of Cambridge, Lord Scroop, and Sir Thomas Gray. Now, these three noblemen have been convinced by France that if they kill Henry when he travels to Southampton, that they will receive the gifts and honors from France. And they decide to go ahead and do it. Of course, Henry's too clever for them and discovers their treachery. He invites them to meet with him in Southampton, and while he's there, he's in the middle of a judgment of a case. He is hearing the case against a drunk who has been speaking ill of the king and the crown, and he dismisses his crime and lets the drunk go on his way. These three lords are shocked at his mercy. They don't understand why they would be so kind to such a common drunk. But Henry says, if I cannot forgive the small crimes, how can I ever forgive the big ones? And he gives him documents proving their treachery. Immediately they confess to their sins and they drop to their knees begging forgiveness and Henry has all three of them executed. This is a sign too of Henry himself. Henry was a very brutal leader in England. He did not take chances. He had seen what the danger of too much mercy might have for the crown. Henry's own father, Henry IV, had a great deal of mercy handed to him by Richard II, and it turned around to end up having the death of Richard II in Henry IV's hands. So Henry V decides to leave no enemies behind, and this plays out in a very deadly way in the real life of Henry V, and is suggested, but not completely told, in the story Shakespeare writes in The Life of Henry V. Moving on, we run into some of the old friends from East Cheap. We find Pistol again, and Doll Tearsheet, and Nim, and they are all discussing the horrible state that poor Falstaff is in. When last we saw Falstaff, he had been dismissed by the king, and they say this dismissal had broken Falstaff's heart and that he was surely dying of it. Here's the truth behind this story. Falstaff himself was a character from Henry IV, part one and two, that was immensely popular. Shakespeare goes on to write a play just to feature this character in The Merry Wives of Windsor, which I'll also talk about later. But here we see that Falstaff is not present. This must have been a great disappointment for the audiences in the Elizabethan period. Falstaff was Shakespeare's most popular comic character. 
But unfortunately for Shakespeare and company, Will Kemp, the clown who played Falstaff, has broken from the company and has left their midst. Shakespeare knows he cannot possibly dream of having another comedian play the role of Falstaff, so instead he decides to kill him off. This is not a popular choice. In fact, there's accounts that the audience booed when it happened. And if you want to see an idea of this, one of the Henry Fives that I really love is Laurence Olivier's Henry V that he did shortly after World War II, where he was trying to build up this sense of loyalty and, and command in England after the war. This is a great, great version of the show because the first about 10 minutes show Shakespeare's plays the way they would have been performed. And when the death of Falstaff is announced, the audience boos. It was a tough situation for Shakespeare in, but there was no way around it. Shakespeare had to kill off Falstaff, and we never see him in Henry V. He dies off stage. In Act Two of Henry V, it is Pistol, his old friend, who has to announce that Falstaff has died, heartbroken. Nell describes trying to keep him warm as they laid next to each other the night before until she realized, of course, that he had died in his sleep. The audience didn't like this, but then they moved on. They had to. There was a whole three other acts of the play to come. And the comic role that play was played by Falstaff gets picked up by some of his fellow characters, such as Pistol and Nim, as they go off to France to fight in the war, as well as with four other little soldiers, an Irish soldier who meets a Scots soldier, who meets a Welsh soldier, who meets an English soldier, and their different thoughts about the war that they're about to fight. Shakespeare is still writing comedy in his serious plays. He's still finding a way to find mirth in it. But he had to find it in a new way after the loss of his greatest clown, Falstaff. All right, we're up to Act 3 of Henry V, and I'm going to pick up on that on the other side. Once again, I'm Shannon from Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. If you want to reach me, you can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Send me your emails, your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. And I'll be back right after this short break. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75Live.com. My name is Shannon Riley and we are today talking about Henry V. Now I've already talked us through Acts 1 and 2 briefly and talked a little bit about the life of Henry and how it really relates to the play itself and how true it might have been to the play. One thing that I neglected to say at the beginning was this was not by far the first Henry V play that the English audiences had seen. There was at least one other that is still uncertain who wrote, and maybe Shakespeare might have read, but there was quite a few history plays being written out there. Matter of fact, some of these plays are just plain lost, and so it's uncertain how many plays that might have existed. It's been estimated that over 5,000 plays are lost from the Elizabethan period. 5,000 plays. Gone. They're just gone. There's probably many, many more that just never got published that are also gone. And some of these definitely could have been Shakespeare's. We know of at least two titles that possibly existed that were published under Shakespeare's name that we cannot find copies of today. And so there could be many more. Part of me always wished that somewhere on some 
dusty library in some old English castle, we're going to find some of these missing plays. It would be exciting if we could. But regardless, this was not the first Henry V. It just became the best. As in everything that Shakespeare wrote, once people experienced Shakespeare's version of Romeo and Juliet, of Hamlet, of Henry V, that was the only version people wanted to see. And those were the versions that were again reproduced during the Restoration when theater was once again allowed to open in England. This was, of course, after the fall of the Puritans. As we go forward, we're talking about a play that was very popular among the English-speaking people, not so much in France. As a matter of fact, I came across a quote the other day that the first time Henry V was ever produced in France wasn't until, and literally this is the case, 1999, and it was met with very tepid response. It's kind of understandable. The English are quite famous for making fun of the French in this play, and France is not seen as very strong, powerful, or even noble. So it's not surprising they have a different version of the events of Henry V than the English do. All right, so moving on to Act Three of Henry V. The war now begins in earnest, and the narrator takes the stage and immediately tells the audience to please imagine now the great ships appearing, the navy of England resting at the shores of France and disembarking their great army as they start their campaign. The first stop they have is a city that leads to a massive fight, and this is a city by the name of Harfleur. Harfleur is the first city that is hit by Henry V's forces and it was rough. The city held its forces strong and Henry nearly loses the battle, but he continues to fight. And it's where that great quote comes from, once more into the breach, dear friends, or seal up the wall with the English dead. He refuses to give up. He refuses to allow this city to stand between him and the conquest of France. And eventually they do indeed win the city. In Shakespeare's play, Henry immediately demands that either the city give up its fight entirely or its maidens will be raped, its babies will be put on pikes, they will be destroyed, vanquished completely by Henry's forces. And so the city does surrender. In truth, the city was razed. It was absolutely devastated by the attack of the English. It was brutal. And it's another sign of how brutal and devastating Henry was as a fighter. He wasn't ever ever going to back down. Shakespeare covers this. He talks about his brave battle. He talks about his strong oratory sense and his ability to talk people into surrendering. When in truth was, it was his army that forced people to surrender. And they were indeed brutal. Meanwhile, back in France, King and the Dolphin are terrified. There's no reason in the world that Henry should have taken that French city. And so they're terrified that he's coming for them. Obvious he has inherited his great power and ability to fight and that Henry himself is dangerous. But in truth, the losses at Harfleur are so intense that Henry decides not to march on Paris. Instead, he turns his attention to the port city of Calais and starts to move his army that direction. The French immediately regroup, build a stronger army, and chase after him as he moves to Calais. Henry doesn't make it to Calais. Instead, he gets held up at Argincourt. And there is one of his biggest battles of all. 
It's the place where great victory of the English army is remembered for hundreds and hundreds of years. But it didn't look like it was going to end that way. The English are outnumbered nearly five to one by the time they reach Agincourt. Shakespeare has Henry do something amazing here. He has him disguise himself and move among his men at night to hear what they think of him and what they think about this war that they are involved in. He listens intently. He asks them questions and he pretends to be one of them as he asks them, is it not their duty to follow the king or is it not their own moral course to survive and keep alive no matter what anybody says? It's a great moment of indecision for Henry. And it also shows Shakespeare's immense ability to be able to see both sides of every story. This captivates Shakespeare's writing from here until the end of his life. His ability to see an argument from both sides and his ability to write both sides is one of the hallmarks of Shakespeare's great writing. There's something else here that is remarkable and he comes back to it later in the play. And that is, he has a king pretend to be a commoner and speak with the common people and even question whether or not war is right. Left alone, Henry doubts the moral legitimacy of war and the moral right a king has to send his people to certain death. Henry is vulnerable and this is not how the English were used to seeing their kings portrayed. But when a message is brought to him that the French are here and they wish to engage at dawn, Henry says we will engage and we will beat the French. It's also important to note that right before this, Henry, who is praying to God for the success of his campaign the next day, also does something unique. He apologizes and begs God's forgiveness for his father's usurping of the throne. Now, this was an important element that Shakespeare puts in the play, and he puts it in the play for a very important reason. And again, it goes back to my always look at plays of when they were written and why they were written. Elizabeth is on the throne here, and one of Elizabeth's biggest issues were usurpers. She was constantly afraid that someone would try to usurp her in the throne. In fact, she was not ever supposed to be queen, just like Henry IV was never supposed to be king. It was supposed to be her younger brother, who was king for a short time, but then died. And then was followed by her sister, Bloody Mary, who also had to be taken out, actually executed by the queen herself. So Elizabeth did not have a great deal of love for the idea of usurpers. And Shakespeare cleverly repeats this motif here with Henry V begging God's forgiveness for his father being a usurper to the crown. The very next day is the battle. Saint Crispin's Day. And that's one of Shakespeare's most famous speeches. The St. Crispin's Day speech Henry gives to rally his troops to fight against the French. This speech where he says the phrase, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, has been used over and over again by people who celebrate the fraternity of whatever it is they are doing, from soldiers to police, firemen, and this band of brothers this idea that the king isn't their leader, but one of their brothers leads them to fight extra hard, considering the fact that they are outgunned again five to one. The truth was that this battle was indeed decisive for the English. It was very decisive, but it also wasn't as bad off as it looked in Shakespeare's play. You see, it rained like a dickens the night before this actual f fight, and the English had taken high ground. When the French moved in to attack, they got bogged down in the mud, and they were literally picked off by the English archers. It is believed around 30 English people died, compared to thousands of French in the actual battle. It was a slaughter. Henry would have known it was a slaughter. 
but Shakespeare makes it appear that Henry, in the thick of fighting and hand-to-hand combat, doesn't know the day is his until he is told later. The victory at Agincourt seals it for Henry V in Shakespeare's play. In truth, it doesn't for the real Henry V. It takes years more for him to continue to fight and slog and break his way through the French defenses, traveling back and forth to Britain during that time. Henry V was only king for nine years. He died in France of dysentery. It is very possible that had he lived, Henry would have been the first king to rule both France and Britain. Because, just like in the play, the French king, Charles VI, who should not be forgotten is clinically insane by this point, but that's another story, agrees to the terms of surrender and names not only Henry V as his successor and the future king of France, but he also hands him his daughter Catherine in marriage. And they are met and they do indeed marry. Unfortunately, Henry dies just two years later and never ever reaches that position as King of France. But I do want to talk about two really kind of neat things at the end of this play. The first is Henry demands time alone with Catherine. It is believed that Catherine and Henry truly did love each other and were devoted to each other. I don't know why this is believed. They would have not known each other and would have only had two years of marriage before his passing. But nevertheless, it's considered a romantic story. Shakespeare treats it very humanly, very sweetly. He has the two of them meet. They can speak neither language. Henry a little French, Catherine a little English. And yet they struggle to meet. And this humble attempt at communication really does lead to a beautiful love story a humane love story, and reinforces what the English believe about Henry and his queen. It's sweet, it's touching, and in a lot of ways it's human. There were complaints that Shakespeare didn't know how to write royalty. He wrote them as too much like the common man. How do we know they were so different? How do we know that they didn't feel the same things we feel? In fact, I certainly do believe they did. And this awkward meeting that they had together where they seemed to fall in love together could very well have been the truth. They had one child, Henry, who goes on to become Henry VI. I've already talked about the plays devoted to Henry VI, part one, two, and three. They were in the first tetralogy. No doubt he was not a strong king, but at the same time, he was an infant when he was named king. If you want to hear more about that, please go back and check out my blogs about Henry the Fourth, Part 1, 2, and 3. They're not strong plays, but they do build up to a very, very good play, and that's Richard III. And that brought about the end of the Hundred Years' War, whereas you see with Henry here, is somewhere in the middle of that Hundred Years' War. Then there's one final thing I want to bring up about Henry that is not touched upon in Shakespeare's play. It's said in the play that he dies, and he is succeeded by his son. Shakespeare says, even in his play, we've already told you about. But Henry dies on, uh, I think it was August 31st, 1422, and he's taken back to Westminster Abbey, and he is buried. Now, during Henry's life, he was rumored to have had several love interests. Not all of them were female. One such possible love interest was Richard Courtenay. Now, he was a bishop, and he was a close personal friend of Henry V. Henry died in 1422. Courtenay died in 1415 and was buried in England. But when they buried Henry in 1422 in Westminster Abbey, it was must have been a magnificent, massive funeral for the King of England. 
but he was exhumed in 1953 to be moved to a better and more befitting place for one of England's greatest kings to be buried. But when they exhumed his body, they found he shared a grave with Richard Courtenay. His grave, Richard's, Henry's grave, was built on top of Richard Courtenay's. Was this planned? There's no mention of it anywhere in any of the historical record. Yet there it was. He was buried on top of his very dear friend and possible lover. This, of course, has nothing to do with Shakespeare's play, but I thought it was interesting. Anyway, that's the story of Henry V. We're going to come back next week. we got to back up a little bit because I skipped over a play because I wanted to get all the Henry ad put together. But we're going to go back and take a look at The Merry Wives of Windsor, one of Shakespeare's only original comedies, and it tells the final story involving Falstaff. So, we're moving into some of the greatest works of William Shakespeare's, his greatest hits. But we're going to take one stop first for this old comedy that would have happened before the play we talked about today. So rejoin me next week on the 8th for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday on KSEF. And until then, keep it barred to the bone. <laughs>